0: Hello there, and thank you for downloading the Agendas podcast from the 12th of December. And we were broadcasting live from COP28 today, the final day, or is it? Uh, Because we had all the breaking stories from the talks, which have entered their final hours. But so far, the draft text has been met with dissatisfaction from most quarters. And as a consequence, it looks like talks could continue past the deadline. First up, we did take a look to see if there were any positives when it comes to climate finance in that document. We found out with expert Dame Heather McGregor, who's the provost and vice principal of Harriet Watt University, Dubai. Meanwhile, scientists researching brains have created tiny immersive VR goggles for mice. The lead researcher joined us to explain why and a new movie illustrating our changing climate aims to spark viewers into action we heard from esteemed nature filmmaker artem Shestakov. plus chris mccardy brought us up to date with all the latest sporting headlines Hello there, yep, welcome back to the programme. Welcome back to uh, COP28, where we're broadcasting live from the blue zone here at Expo City. Now, a draft text released overnight by the COP28 negotiating team here in Dubai has, unfortunately, been met by a storm of protests by policy analysts and government leaders alike. The EU has been particularly vociferous, with Vodka Hochstra, who is the EU's climate czar commissioner, describing the document as disappointing and a long way from what was needed. Others have pointed out some positives in the text. And analysts have reminded onlookers that there is still time for more progress as negotiations are set to continue. the rest of the day here at Expo City and certainly it does feel like that is what is going on here because there was set to be a series of press conferences this morning uh, none of which are now set to take place so we are slightly flying in the dark right now Um, on the business breakfast you might have just heard we were all trying to decide whether or not it was a good thing that no one was talking to the press Um, most of us thought it was a good thing it sort of gave you an indication that they were still planning what to say, which means that maybe the sands are still shifting. Um, And it is fair to say that it hasn't been all bad news when it comes to this 21-page document. Some analysts have also reacted positively to clauses on climate change, uh, on sorry, on climate finance. So has progress actually been made in that key sector? Let's find out with a rather important analyst because joining me now to discuss that topic is investment banker and green finance expert Dame Heather McGregor. Now, she's the provost and vice principal of Heriot-Watt University, Dubai and I bet you know her as the author of the Mrs. Money Penny column in the Financial Times, which I'm sure many of us enjoyed reading uh, for many years. I know I certainly did. Uh, thank you very much in join- for joining us on the line, Dame Heather. How are you? I'm I'm very well, really. I'm I'm.
1: Apart from the other, I don't know if I'm sad or relieved that we've got to the end of COP. I don't know. How do you feel, Georgia? It's, it's been going on a while and you've been live on the spot the whole time.
0: Well, do you know, the warm up to it lasted about two years. So it's actually quite hard to believe that we're, we're close to over. But I'm, I'd be interested. To get, I'm going to fire that straight back at you. Do you think that we will see the end of the talks today or do you think we're going to, to drag on into the rest of the week?
1: Um, I think we will get some statement today. I mean, you're right that this is where we get complete radio silence. We've obviously all read these two hundred and thirty eight uh, clauses um and that um uh, mine is twenty one pages. um i uh, uh, but that's probably how it shows on my computer. i I really think though that there will be some statement tonight. there will be i you know dubai and and the UAE don't like Um, things slipping, you know, they'd like to do what they say they're going to do on the tin. And they said there would be something today. I think there will be something today. I I think the question is, what is it? And is it going to be something that's as strong as we might have got if we'd given it a few more days? But it, it does help to have a deadline. I don't know how you feel about that, but deadlines are very helpful to focus attention.
0: Yeah, they're the only way that I can work, that's for sure. Now, tell me, uh, there's been a lot of talk, um, and, they, and they did this on The Business Breakfast quite a bit, and we will talk about it later on in the programme. There's been a lot of talk about this phrase, phased out rather than phased down. But with you, as you are a climate finance expert, I'd quite I'd like to ask you about that loss and damage fund that was announced right back at the beginning of COP28 and also the other um, clauses that are in this draft text that refer to climate finance. Do you feel that maybe progress has at least been made there this year?
1: Yes, well, of course, the climate finance that I focus on is the climate finance that is taking place in the private sector. And the Loss and Damage Fund is very much a public sector uh, intergovernmental. Um, you know uh, initiative uh, just to remind us all that on the first day as you know at cop28 countries pledged about 429 us uh, million us dollars to establish and, and to set up and run the loss and damage fund and of course the uae led the way in terms of that and i i think that that's really important because what we've got at the moment is a, a, a situation where countries that are not able to decarbonize that, that have really not really had their industrial revolution if you like um have have got to go through that process and frankly if they don't get help, then they will be doing a lot of polluting. Um, and their, their position is, you know, it's all very well for the rest of you who've had your industrial revolution and caused all of this chaos in the 1800s and 1900s. Um, but we're having to do it now and we want help. And that's what the loss and Damage Fund is for. It's to help countries that have yet to decarbonize, to decarbonize their heavy industry and, and to go through their own industrial revolution without causing the damage to the planet that the rest of us did. Uh, that, however, is you know only phase one of climate finance Georgia you know there is so much more that needs to be done and a lot of it needs to be done actually in investment banks now it's a while since I worked in an investment bank because I quit to become an entrepreneur and then I quit that to become an academic but I still write and publish in this area and what I do know is that we need as much innovation in finance as we do in the lab in order to address the climate emergency
0: what type of innovation are we talking about here? Because I have, you know, I've tried to read into it. i tried to understand it. But I know that there are things like, for example, that banks aren't happy to lend money to developing countries to build, for example, solar farms if it's too risky. And therefore, the money just isn't there for them. Is it that type of deal that you've been looking at?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the risk, that the, the People can't assess the risk correctly. And when you can't assess the risk correctly, what you do is you price it out of out of all proportion. So, you, you know, you take, for instance, the um, the creditworthiness of the country and you attach that to the credit worthiness of the solar farm, in your example. Um, and, it, and it may be that that solar farm actually is perfectly credit and perfectly able to service the debt and shouldn't be priced in the same way as the credit risk of the country. A credit risk of a country is all down to how, how much do people trust the government? Look what happened when, you know, Liz Trust published an unfunded budget, uh, you know, just over a year ago in the UK the the UK you know currency collapsed and that's that's the kind of risk people are attaching that kind of risk to individual solar farms and 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 by the way it's not just solar farms they won't lend money to people building wind farms um, in the sea or to uh, you know more complicated things hydrogen for instance or even to um, carbon capture and storage projects and then you get down to the whole area of finance through um, through carbon offset, you know, there are lots and lots of projects in the global south that would be able to be funded by carbon offset because people recognise now, you know, in the developed world, we recognise we can't keep our pumping out carbon. We need to pay for carbon offset. And so a well-functioning carbon market, which by the way, does not exist yet, uh, is another innovation that we need. And this is what I mean by innovation outside of the lab as well as in the lab.
0: Are those the types of things that are covered in this global stocktake draft text that everybody's working on at the moment, or are they considered sort of separate?
1: No, this this draft text is much more fundamental than that. This draft text is looking at um, the you know what I was saying at the beginning that things like the loss and damage fund, the the kind of the work that the, um, the, the supranationals will do, things that are effectively IMF. Type activity, intra nation intergovernmental activity. Of course, this is the great joy of COP. It brings together, and this, this COP brought together more heads of state than any other, not just any other COP, any other global event. We should be incredibly proud that that happened in the UAE. And I think that the real impact won't just be whatever we get tonight or whenever we get it. It will be all of the other things that happened here as a result of the amazing convening power that we had here for these 10 days.
0: So you hope, you believe that this COP28 will be seen as a success story by the global community because, of course, Dubai has a lot riding on that. The UAE does not like to fail on the public stage. And it, and it put itself out there by hosting this COP. Uh, do you feel that it'll reap the rewards?
1: Yes, I do think we will absolutely uh, reap the rewards from this. I mean, you know, just speaking as uh, as an individual university that's, you know, we've been in the UAE since 2005, by student numbers, we're the biggest uh, university, international university uh, here in the UAE, and it's been the most phenomenal opportunity for us, and I'm just one organisation. I think that this uh, this has been a remarkable, once in a life, once in a in a lifetime, once in a generation opportunity here. Uh, but the, the the real beneficiaries of this are not just the individual countries. They will also be all the NGOs that were here, um, that that are trying to develop some of this stuff in things like cl- and carbon credits and and climate finance. I don't I mean the size of the climate finance building. Um, on the um on the in the green zone was i think an indication of how important this is it's not you know as i said it's not just in the lab and what was going on and the discussions that were going on in there were not just about the things in this stock take they were also about some of the private sector activity that needs to take place and some of the regulation we need global regulation of things like the carbon credit activity we need um, global regulation of green bonds, that's another area I look at, is the taxonomy. What, what somebody calls a green bond in one country and, and one industry is different to what somebody calls a green bond in another country. And we need consistent definitions so that people understand what they're investing in. And only then, I think, will we, will we see the release of serious investment, private investment. And governments can only go so far. If you want to really fund something, you need to release private investment.
0: Really interesting stuff there. Thank you so much for joining us on the programme today. Dame Heather McGregor there, Provost and Vice Principal of Harriet watt University, Dubai, giving us a bit of an insight into the various different facets of this COP28 conference. It's not just going to come down to that final text, that final global stocktake text. In fact, a lot more has been going on on the sidelines and some of it even possibly more important. Uh, Dame Heather, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks for joining us on the agenda. And no doubt, this is a conversation that can run and run. Certainly, we need to get into that green bond subject in some more details.
2: From Expo City, Dubai.
0: This is
3: The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8.
2: Live at COP28,
3: the world's largest climate conference.
0: Hello there and welcome back to The Agenda. Yep, broadcasting to you live from COP28. But we aren't just going to be talking about COP stuff. Uh, Although I have to admit there's going to be quite a bit of it on the show today because we are entering the final hours of negotiations right here in Dubai. But we are now going to turn our attention to something completely different because a new survey published by Road Safety UAE shows about a third of parents still do not own a proper child seat. And that is despite a major campaign by Dubai police to educate parents about their legal obligation to buckle up their children. Now, the authorities announced that in Dubai, two children have died this year and a further 45 were seriously injured in 47 traffic accidents where children were involved. And, And joining me now to discuss what I have to say, I I find very confusing. It's it's a complete conundrum to me as to why people wouldn't want to make their children safer in cars. Uh, But but joining me now to, to tell me why parents aren't obeying the law is Thomas Edelman. He is Managing Director of Road Safety UAE. Thomas, it feels extraordinary to me every single time I do this interview with you because every single time I am dazzled that people are disobeying the law and And the laws of physics, you know, and the laws of parenthood. You know, surely everyone wants to keep their children as safe as possible. And and the evidence is just overwhelming. Why aren't parents putting their children in seatbelts here?
4: Uh, Good morning. Um, I hope you're well. I hope everybody else is well. Yes, absolutely. This is the key question. I mean, um, we know it's the law. We know we have the holistic seatbelt law in place uh, since 2017 and still people do not obey to the law. And uh, parents don't buckle up their children, parents don't have the proper restraint systems. Now, as I just said, I mean, about um, a third of parents, they do not own the proper restraint uh, system uh, for their children. So we went out and we researched. And the number one mention is that people are confused. So people say, parents say, I don't know which one to buy. Is it the front-facing one, the rear-facing one? What is isofix, et cetera, et cetera. So point number one with about 27% is uh, people don't know, parents don't know which seat to buy. The second mention is that children do not like to be strapped in, 24%. So just think about that. My kid tough tells luck. me, hey, it's <laughs> absolutely tough luck. That's exactly it. I mean, there are situations we want to be uh, the friends of our children and we want, be, we want to be their buddies and their play buddies and we want to have a good time. But there are also situations where we just have to play the role of a caring parent. And it's about, hey, listen, Habibi, no, you are buckling up right now. This is non-negotiable. So the second point where parents say, ah oh, my kids don't like to be strapped in, about 24%, as I mentioned, is, ch- just, is just not acceptable. The third one is that people say it's too expensive. So these are the, it's also about 24%. So these are the, the, the top three mentioned. I also want to, to mention the point number four, which is just, just one percentage po- point below, which is 23%, where parents say passengers holding kids on their laps is as safe as child seats or booster cushions. And you just mentioned, you know, the, the law of, of, of physics. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely beyond comprehension that people still have... Uh, That mindset, and this just underlines the importance of education. I mean, we have seen three major initiatives recently, and you talked about that. So, Dubai Police was the first one. So they went out, they gave away child seats. Um, Now, RTA around National Day, they teamed also up with private companies, and they went out and they gave away child seats. One of our partners, a German car, uh, car seat brand called Cybex. Uh, they are going out, they are educating people because we know, again, number one reason why parents do not own child seats is they don't know which one to take. So we have to educate, we have to tell parents, hey, listen, this is the reason why you need child seats and your child is so and so old. And then for you, this child seat is the, is the proper one. So this is basically the way forward. We have to constantly raise awareness for this super, super important topic of road safety And we have to educate uh, the parents and the other stakeholders. Let's just think about kindergartens. Yeah, so uh, the kids are dropped off. Here, you know, very young kids are getting dropped off. Sometimes they are two years and younger. So what is the role of a caring uh, kindergarten? Do they they talk to parents? Hey, do you have child seats? When you bring a child in the morning, do you really make sure that you have the proper child seat? You know, we have information material, we can guide you, uh, we can have information sessions for parents, etc., etc. So it is not only the parents, it is also the wider ecosystem
0: really interesting as always to speak to you Thomas I'm always uh, dazzled by those statistics for what it's worth when I mean mine are now nine and ten but I had to learn about car seats and yeah I understand it is quite complicated but there is a really easy way of doing it which is you go to a shop with your child and you just ask the guy or girl in the shop which one is right for my child and Simple as that. You then know, and then you can walk out with it. Incidentally, I've got two car seats that I don't use anymore because my children are now giants. So if anyone wants a free child seat for a baby under the age of two, I've, I've got them. They haven't been involved in accidents. That's the other thing. You're not meant to buy secondhand. But very few car seats have actually been involved in an accident. And so as a consequence, I'm sure they'd be absolutely fine. But yeah, if you're having trouble figuring out which one they should use, or you're having trouble figuring out, I mean, my youngest hated sitting in a car seat. And he just had to get used to it. And ultimately, eventually, they do.
2: From Expo City, Dubai.
0: This is
3: The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8.
2: Live at COP28,
3: the world's largest climate conference.
0: I have to admit, a big focus on the programme today is going to be that draft text that was released late last night by the team here at COP28 by the negotiating team. However, we are also looking at other subjects making headlines around the world because we're aware that. You know, not everything is around sustainability. And in fact, a slightly crazy science story caught our eye in the last few hours. Uh, I'll I'll sort of summarize it to you in short. Uh, Scientists researching how brains work have created tiny immersive VR goggles for mice. Yep. Earlier, I spoke to the study author, Professor Daniel Dombeck. He's from Northwestern University's Department of Neurobiology. And he explained the motivations behind the study.
5: It's really driven by the science uh, more than just wanting to make goggles for mice. So my lab actually studies memory in animals. So we're trying to find the neurons and the synapses that form memories when animals are, say, running around in a maze. And we develop these really fancy microscopes to image into their heads and find these neurons and, and study the synapses. But it's really impossible for the animals to carry these big complicated devices microscopes around on their heads as they run through mazes right and so instead what we thought we'd do is we hold the animal head still under the microscope because these are like big tabletop microscopes and then we have them run on a treadmill but that's kind of boring right if they're just sitting there running on a treadmill so we thought we should put virtual reality around them try to immerse them in a virtual reality system and so it was really out of the need to want to use these very fancy devices to study their brains that we had to come up with a creative way to get them to do behaviors like running through mazes. And so instead of running through a real maze with these goggles on, they can run through a virtual maze as they run on the treadmill. Then what they see through the goggles is this virtual reality maze that they're moving through.
0: So do you add different visuals for them other than just running through the maze? Are you testing other hypotheses on them and other bits of the brain as well by putting different visions in
6: these goggles?
5: Uh, So we did. So in this study, this was more of a proof of concept for the goggles, I'd say. So we had them running through mazes. We give them rewards at different places that they have to find. And in this study, we actually, because the goggles were filling their full field of view, including the overhead region. So this, this overhead region is actually really important for small animals. They monitor it with both of their eyes because, you know, they're afraid of, things flying in from above trying to eat them, right? I think of an owl chasing a mouse. And so mice are always looking up above their heads. And so with these goggles, one of the things we thought we'd test was to generate an overhead looming stimulus in the virtual reality paradigm. And so just think of like a looming, like a disc getting larger and larger over the animal. And in a real environment, if we do that from an animal running around in in our lab, if you do that, they freeze or they flee really fast. And so we did the same thing in the virtual environment, and they did the same thing. They they froze in place most of the time, or sometimes they ran to a little, you know, safe hiding place up above in the virtual system. And so that was a nice proof of concept that we could, um, you know, activate this kind of innate fear system and and escape system in these animals using the virtual reality goggles. It gave us another, you know, sort of hint that it's it's really kind of uh, generating naturalistic-like behaviors in this virtual paradigm.
0: Was it really difficult to create the the tiny goggles (laughs) or is the tech already there?
5: This idea has actually been around for 15, 20 years or more. So, you know, for many years, we've actually been using like flat screen monitors in front of the animals as our virtual reality. But it's more like the animals kind of watching TV. It's like us when we're watching TV, you can see the living room around you. You know, you're not totally immersed in it. And, 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 you know, I think if we've all had the experience of putting on a headset putting on Oculus Rift or something like that, it's its a totally different experience, right? You get depth information, you know, you don't see anything else around you. And so we've been wanting to do the same thing for mice for years to have them more immersed in these virtual simulations, but the, the technology really wasn't there until very recently, having these really small screens. And then, you know, in our case, making a, a lens system to fully fill the field of view of the animals was very complicated. That took a long time. You know, a lot of, you know, my team spent, you know, the better part of a year in optics design software trying to get the design just right. And so it was quite challenging to make it work.
0: So what is the next step? Now you've got this proof of concept. It must be hugely exciting because it must have opened up a whole different sort of area of research for you.
5: Yeah, some of the next steps are trying to make the, virtual simulations even more realistic. So we'd like to add in olfactory cues, auditory cues, you know, think something like the matrix, maybe not quite that in depth and and realistic, but we'd like to get to as realistic simulations as possible. So the animals, uh, you know, really feel almost completely immersed in the environments. And then we'd like to use the, this virtual reality world to do experiments that you can't even do in real environments, right? So we can teleport the animal from one side of the environment to the other we can change the rules of physics, right? So as animals run faster, maybe they lo- move th- slower through the environment. And there's some really interesting sensory motor learning paradigms that we can access with that sort of cue conflict type of experiment that we can do in virtual reality. Um, and then, you know, kind of technology wise, we're thinking about putting these goggles um, on the animals. So right now we're kind of holding their head fixed and we hold the the, the goggles in front of them, we're miniaturizing them even further so that they can carry them around with them and run around. But what they would see would be a virtual maze or, you know, some sort of interaction paradigm that we would would generate for them. And so that's kind of where the technology is headed. Um, and then, of course, we're very interested in using this combination of these um, these goggles with our microscope systems to to study memory formation further, right? So it's you know developing new techniques like this new technology this is what leads to new discoveries in neuroscience and it's going to let us hopefully uh, generate discoveries that are going to help us better understand how we form memories and then how our memories get degraded in, in diseases like neurodegeneration
0: fascinating so, yeah, so ultimately in, in the long term what you see in a mouse's brain might have parallels in a in a human brain even though with different mammals
5: That's right. We're different mammals, but our brains are remarkably similar. So the discoveries that are made in lab animals and and lab mice and rats, that's where the first findings are made that eventually trickle down to medical breakthroughs for humans.
0: Fascinating stuff there. Who would believe the way that scientists go putting tiny little goggles based on Um, They're based on Apple Watches, would you believe it, on mice. Uh, That was Professor Daniel Dombeck there from Northwestern University's Department of Neurobiology. I also didn't realize that mice had a very similar brain to humans. I'm sort of going to start looking at mice in a slightly different way. Or maybe my children's hamsters. I'll look at them in a slightly different way as well.
2: From Expo City, Dubai.
3: This is The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8.
2: Live at COP28,
3: the world's largest climate conference.
0: Welcome back to the show. Yep, you are listening to The Agenda here live from COP28. Now, we're here in the blue zone where all the diplomats and negotiators basically hang out. So, access to this area is pretty hard fought with activists really keen to influence decision makers so when we heard about a film that was being presented here at the un climate change innovation hub we wanted to find more find out more have a listen to this
5: my name is artem shestikov as a photographer how could i use my images to help inspire the change this planet so desperately needs this is my journey to capture a moment that echoes the very heartbeat of our climate crisis. I find myself on a journey to capture the perfect shot.
0: Really? fascinating movie. Uh, Really staggering. I mean, I've watched a little bit about it. It's just beautifully shot. It's called The Perfect Shot, in fact, Antarctica. It's a documentary and it profiles the award-winning fine art photographer, Artem Shostakov, who actually joins me now on the line. Artem, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. When did you start making this film? Because you really do explore some of the most remote locations on the planet.
6: Thank you so much for having me. So we actually started work on the film four years ago, even before the COVID happened. But because of the COVID, we couldn't proceed with the film. So we was developing the whole idea about three years. And finally, earlier this year in January, we went to Antarctica and spent a month there, photographing and also filming the impact of human being on that ecosystem. and Afterwards, we decided to bring this uh, film to the audience in the COP28, which is, I think, is the best platform to give our message to the masses as well as for the decision makers that attended the COP28. And this is just a beginning of bigger project, which is we're trying to film next year. It's going to be seven episodes film and we're gonna film one episode per continent. We want to show that film showing the climate uh, climate change in the world and which is highlights the butterfly effect of action taken anywhere in the planet that can affect other region. So basically it doesn't matter where you live what happened in Antarctica is affect us all. For instance one of our producer here from Pakistan. And as we all know, uh, very short times ago, the Pakistan suffered from very big floodings that repl- displaced more than 30 million people. So we're trying to show that we live on the one planet and doesn't matter what we do here can affect somebody else in the other side of the planet.
0: You've worked as a, as a photographer and as a filmmaker for many years. Were you always a keen environmentalist or has it developed as part of your job?
6: I have been doing photography for the past 10 years. And the last few years I was traveling to remote regions like Alaska and other parts in Middle East and Asia. And what happened to me I started seeing that places that I come to photograph, they are ruined by us, by human beings. And also in Alaska, many of the glaciers that I came to photograph, they are not there anymore. So then I decided that I need not just do a photography, I need try to give a message through my photography to the people. Because nowadays, when we see the big data from the scientists, it just scares us and many of us just don't understand that. So I'm trying to use my creative vision through my photography and now the film to show and educate the mass people to, about the climate change.
0: I have to say, uh, having watched as much of it as I could last night before I needed to go to bed, uh, it is uh, visually incredible and certainly does elicit that feeling that you need to do something to save the natural world. So, Artem, certainly you've got a convert here uh, on the radio. So uh, it was a really, really beautiful piece. Well worth watching. It's called The Perfect Shot, Antarctica. And you've just been listening uh, to the award-winning fine art photographer, Artem Shastakov, who is one of the people behind that film that was uh, premiered right here in the Blue Zone at COP28. Artem, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining me on the agenda on Dubai 103.8.
2: From Expo City, Dubai.
3: This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8.
2: Live at COP28.
3: The world's largest climate conference.
0: Yes, welcome back to our studio right here. We are at COP 28. Uh, we're just by the mobility pavilion in uh, Expo City. If you wanted to sort of visualise where we were, it's freezing cold in our studio, keeping us keeping us cold because otherwise the equipment gets too hot. Uh, but we are having a fantastic time here. It is amazing. It's a really amazing opportunity to be on site when something so historic is being. Debated, And certainly we did uh, receive that second draft of the text that they're negotiating at the moment from the delegates. About 200 countries here. I've no idea how on earth they juggle those conversations. Um, but the talks do continue. They're very tense at the moment. Everyone is very tired. Um, you've had people staying up till all hours trying to move the conversation by tiny little increments bit by bit by bit uh, in order to come up with a a conclusion that will work for everybody. Um, These talks set to continue, I imagine, well into this evening. Uh, Cops often do overrun, um, but so far no one has suggested that this one definitely will, although it does sound like the parties or the countries are very uh, far apart from each other at the moment. Uh, We haven't just been talking about COP on the show, although it's difficult to get off the topic, but uh, Chris McCarty has joined us, uh, or at least he sent us a report on the latest sports headlines, just to remind us, well I suppose just to give us a little bit of relief. Uh, So here are the latest sports stories with Chris.
2: Good morning Georgia, my apologies that this is coming to you a little late, busy boy this morning, and well let's start again. feel like we're doing this an awful lot it is with the football a big night of UEFA Champions League action to look ahead to and well all eyes will be on Old Trafford midnight kickoff it is Manchester United against Bayern Munich a game United simply have to win if they are to reach the knockout stages of the Champions League they need results elsewhere to go their way United need to beat Bayern Munich and hope that Copenhagen and Galatasaray draw over in the Danish capital Manchester United coming off the back of Saturday's 3-0 home defeat to Bournemouth and Bayern Munich, who, lest we forget, have already qualified for the knockout stages. They themselves are coming off the back of a humiliating 5-1 defeat at Frankfurt at the weekend as well. So two embattled managers in a lot of way. OK, an awful lot more pressure on Eric Ten Hag than there is Thomas Tuchel. But it is simply must-see football match a little later. Midnight kickoff. Man United with Bayern tonight with Liverpool on Sunday. I'm not over-egging the pudding a little bit when I say Eric Ten Hag faces maybe just maybe the two biggest games of his managerial career today. certainly as Manchester United boss. There are seven other fixtures to look ahead to. Real Madrid, they are in the German capital of Berlin to take on Union Berlin. But of course, Real Madrid safely into the knockout stages already. Expect Carlo Angelotti to, uh, well, to probably mix and match with his squad as he looks to keep players fresh heading in to this festive period. As for sport elsewhere, will I continue that Rispa Pant, big news in the world of cricket. A man who of course we haven't seen in the cricket field, that serious car crash that he suffered December 2022. Delhi Capitals have confirmed that it looks as if he is on track to make his long-awaited comeback. He will skipper the side in next year's IPL. So that's a bit of great news out of the world of cricket. Loads more going on besides Eyes will be on the UEFA Champions League tonight. I'm looking forward to it. And yes, I will be staying up well past my bedtime to watch it. All eyes, United Bayern, even if you aren't a football fan, tune in, should be an absolute cracker.
0: Yeah, that's Chris McCardy there bringing us up to date with all of the latest sporting action. Uh, he will return for your delectation from about 5pm this afternoon for your drive time show off script. <laughs> The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.